The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk on 92.7 and 106 FM. This is The Money Show. It is, uh, of course, brought to you by APSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa. And it's proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. Hilary Joffe standing by this evening. She is columnist and editor-at-large at Business Day. One of the more contentious stories of the week, which really should not be contentious, is the issue around the currency. The currency has had a terrible week. It's unrelated to any of the news flow of the particular RAND manipulation that happened uh, 10, 15 million, uh, 15 million years ago. It feels like it, 10 or 15 years ago, and has been under investigation by the competition authorities for quite some time. We'll also pick up uh, on the lessons we could learn from Kenya. Our money show explained that this evening, some really thought-provoking moves uh, happening by Kenya, which is growing at a rate that South Africa is not, and the gap between our economies is shrinking at an exponential rate. We will focus on fungus on a Friday because it's fabulous to do so. Well, anyway, we nearly got completely alliterative uh, this evening. But yes, on our uh, on our Friday file, we're going uh, delving for funguses and finding out how you can get hold of um, one of the more delicious delicacies of probably Italian, certainly European origin. The Italians are best known for their truffles, um, but we are importing truffles from Australia. What are they doing in Australia that we're not doing here? I know that occasionally in the forests of Newlands, a truffle can be found. I don't know what sort of spores you need to spread in order to get uh, those truffles found in the forests of South Africa. But we'll pick up on that coming up on The Money Show, the Brutal Biz Quiz, and, of course, the best bits of The Money Show on a Friday night. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. The oddest and most misrepresented story of the week has been the nonsense spoken and printed around the RAND manipulation story. Brown way out of proportion, deliberately, I believe, to deflect and distract from a host of other issues and failures. Good to see the Governor of the Reserve Bank this week coming out and affirming the Competition Commission's role in what's been an eight-year case against 28 banks for an allegation of foreign exchange market collusion. Two international banks have settled. None has admitted any liability. Yet the popularity, 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 yes. And again, media reports have dis, uh, been really disingenuous on this. And I think politicians have leapt onto this thing and interest parties have leapt onto this and podcasters with not a clue have leapt onto this. So it's been quite a fascinating week. Hilary Joffe, though, is not one of those people. She's a columnist and editor at large at business day. The the Reserve Bank actually did look into this initially, didn't they, Hillary? And they think passed the buck to the Competition Commission. Uh, no, they did not pass any buck to the what Competition Commission. No, they did not. And I think there was a distinct note of exasperation <laughs> in the governor's uh, answer to the question that he was asked about Standard Chartered. Um, I've looked quite carefully at what he said, and I think he was quite careful. Uh, he pointed out that he did He did say that when the RAND is appreciating, you know, when the RAND is depreciating, we wanted a commission of inquiry. When it's going up, nobody wants a commission. But he said that's not the issue here. He said um, proactively, as it were, back in 2014, when the Reserve Bank heard, uh, heard about the global LIBOR and foreign exchange scandals that were going on, it launched its own investigation into the authorized dealers in foreign exchange in the South African domestic market, who are, you know, all the names that you would know and love, um, who are allowed to trade foreign exchange. Um, And 
this review, which I think um, probed the issue for the Reserve Bank for about a year, um, concluded um, he didn't say so, but he pointed out it's on the website and it says uh, the review could not find any evidence of widespread malpractice or serious misconduct in the South African foreign exchange market. That is what the review said. It said there was a bit of inappropriate behavior and sharing client information by some of the traders and things needed to be tightened up and it recommended a code of conduct, which the Reserve Bank subsequently developed and signed up to the international code of conduct that was being developed. Um, so the governor... Uh, covered all that sort of and then he said however he said after we had when we had already launched our investigation the competition commission approached us and her said it had heard this kind of news and it wanted to do its own investigation we sat with them for hours and hours and hours we assisted them um, and then he said but the competition commission is the competent authority to investigate matters of market abuse and let the process go ahead. Uh, and it's, it's been a long process, and I think a destructively long process, because if you don't nip these things in the bud, then the rumour mills and the conspiracy theorists go completely and utterly bonkers. I mean, my understanding of this thing, and as best as I can understand it, is that you've got a couple of white boys who do a deal, possibly over a drink or two. Uh, tomorrow you turn a blind eye, I'll turn a blind eye next Thursday. I'll trade up, you trade down. Boom, boom, boom. This isn't a trillion rand problem. This isn't a trillion rand a week or a day or whatever nonsense um, independent newspapers published this week. Um, this is opportunistic currency traders taking advantage of a gap in the market that they see and getting caught out. First of all, it was a very long time ago, Bruce. And second of all, it was in the New York market in yeah. chat rooms. Um, and third of all, we know from the U.S. Department of Justice um, prosecution and Standard Chartered had done a plea bargain at that time in the New York market. So had um, one or two other banks. We knew about that. The Competition Commission, if those are the only banks that are going to be found um, implicated, then the Competition Commission could have sorted that if there was a case at all, which is very dubious because there's a question of jurisdiction here. Um, they could have sorted it in 2015, instead of which it has dragged on and on and on, doing, as you say, a great deal of reputational damage, uh, most notably by the minister of the, in the presidency oh, the other day, please. who accused the private sector of manipulating the RAND to collapse the economy. And this may have been, I suspect, what prompted a statement today from the Treasury which says, oh, no, we're, we're sort of on it, we're tightening up, you know, we're making sure that the market is well run and well governed and so on. However, whilst the wrongdoing described by the, by the competition um, authorities harmed individual clients, it could not, would not have influenced the value of the rand. Why? The currency has why? depreciated since uh, then absolutely. for reasons that have to do with the fundamentals of the economy and nothing to do with the traders. Now, why is it being weaponized in this way? What is your theory on that? Do you dare to posit a theory, Hillary? I think there's a bit of a history of this in, in South Africa, briefly. Going back to probably apartheid days and exchange control, there was like a bit of a, an obsession with the RAND and this notion that shadowy foreign bankers <laughs> sitting in distant chat rooms are fiddling with our currency, our beloved RAND. Um, and and destroying our economy is 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 a it's kind of a it's kind of a populist sort of a trope I think and you know clearly 
there were some traders who got up to mischief, probably, you know, in a, in a foreign market. And the Competition Commission, um, the problem with the, the comp- so, so I think that really is the background to this. But the Competition Commission, probably to try and give itself jurisdiction over the case, has added a bunch of South African banks and all sorts of banks where, who are basically saying to me and to the courts, Please tell us, what did we do wrong? We weren't even there. Uh, It's astonishing. And uh, Hilary Joffe, thank you. I think the only solution to this is to bring Norm Vula back because that way maybe we can solve the problem. But yeah, thank you, Hilary Joffe, columnist and editor-at-large at Business Day. On to a topic of something completely different and it's connected to this. It's about South Africa's inability to function effectively in a continent where a country is showing us how it should be done. This week, something interesting happened in Kenya. And there's it's part of a much bigger and more apparent shift that is emerging. This week, we saw President William Ruto announce the government is poised to privatize 35 state companies. And it happened very shortly after he enacted a new law last month that will sort of guide the process. Kenya uh, privatized a company in 2008. What's more? fairly insignificant, called Safaricom. And Safaricom has gone up in leaps and bounds since that time. And then this week, I also read a piece by the analyst Michael Power on the Daily Maverick. And this week, he pointed out to the fact that a decade ago, South Africa was a much bigger, 10 times bigger economy than Kenya. Today, Kenya has closed that gap. Michael Power is a consultant at the Kaskazi Consultancy in Cape Town this evening. Uh, What is it that Kenya has been getting so right for so long, probably two, two and a half decades or so, Michael? Well, I think you've probably alluded to it in your introduction. Uh, Good evening to you. Um, uh, The fact is that by and large, government gets out of the way and lets the uh, natural commercial ability, which is so evident in Kenya, um, basically take the country forward. And you've seen that across a whole range of areas from the way in which, for instance, and I see that we're into uh, stage six this weekend, uh, Kenya Power and Light at one stage basically said, uh, there's no way that we can electrify the rural areas of Kenya, just will not make economic sense. So what we're going to do is say, anybody in the private sector who wants to come up with a solution can. And the result was basically the solarification, solar panels all over those rural areas, which which the uh, Kenya Power and Light was not going to serve. Um, and it, it's been transformative. Uh, so it's just that's just an example of how, um, by and large, uh, whichever side it's on, uh, whether it was you know, Kenyatta or Ruto, and I thought Ruto was marginally to the left, and here he is going and privatizing 35 countries, uh, companies. So, yeah, uh, yeah obviously, he's, he, you know, they, they are basically, either way, pro-capitalist. Uh, and you, I, mean, I see you repeating a, a statement by another analyst talking about Kenya positioning itself to become the Singapore of Africa, and it's wonderfully evocative. What is uh, it Yes, doing? indeed. I think uh, Tyler Cowan of uh, Bloomberg went a little over the top there. <laughs> but there's a, there's a lot that, that, that is to be recommended. I mean, for instance, in, in the tech space, uh, in the venture capital space, um, yes, it's probably by uh, default, but no, not simply by default, the, the financial capital of Eastern Africa. So in that respect, I suppose there are some very uh, sort of tenuous connections to the idea of being the Singapore of Africa. But there's no doubt that businessmen, when they go to Kenya, uh, encounter an extraordinary can-do attitude. Um, and, and South African friends of mine who've been up there have come, come back blown away.
What What is it, though, that drives the can-do attitude? Is it that sense that I, you are free to explore commercial opportunities without the concern of policy risk, without the concern of, uh, of, of political intervention? Well, if I was looking back in history, I would probably say that you know, not that it's confined to them any longer, but, but Kenya was blessed with the, the, what's called the Kikuyu tribe, who are remarkably commercial. And they've basically shown the other tribes what to do. And the other tribes, in, in some respects, are now starting to catch up. So they had this very, very adventurous uh, driving force at the center of the country, which is, broadly speaking, where the Kikuyus live. Nairobi is their sort of capital. Um, but uh, all over the country now, basically, uh, whether you're a Luo or a Luya or a Kamba, uh, you're following the, the examples of, of the Kikuyus. And, 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 and it, you've got this extraordinary spirit of, of, of let's just get out and make business. And government doesn't get in their way, by and large. Uh, is that, has it got something to do with the neighborhood you inhabit? South Africa's got fast-growing Namibia and very impressive Botswana as neighbors, but also Zimbabwe and Mozambique, which are far less prosperous, of course. Kenya inhabits, a, I don't know, a more supportive ecosystem, perhaps, where a lot of the economies around them are pulling together, collaborating and working, um, you know, competing and working together at the same time, however, for a regional growth plan. I think if you asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have been a little bit more circumspect because um, Tanzania especially, but even Uganda, um, generally speaking, did not um, have a reputation for being commercially savvy. Um, And indeed, they almost criticized Kenya for being so. That said, now um, they basically said enough of this. We're just going to have to, in our own way, start copying the Kenyans with the result that you're now getting um, a regional economy um, uh, that's, you know, and depending on how you define it, because I would throw in Ethiopia into my definition of regional, sure. um, is, uh, is, is 500 million people, uh, which is way bigger than, for instance, West Africa, even with Nigeria's 220. So um, you have got a, a base um, and a connectivity and a willingness to put you know, roads across uh, borders or even railways across borders um, or pipelines and starting to, to, to make the region as a whole starting to work together. And there, one gets the sense that, that that collaboration is one thing, but there's also the diplomacy that is followed by government that seems to be very agile in its approach and doesn't seek to antagonize, doesn't seek to pick sides, doesn't seek to... It, it's a balanced diplomacy, perhaps. Quite, quite. You know, the, the new expression which is being used very much in the sort of tradition of BRICS is non-alignment, which is to sort of go back to, you know, the 1950s when there was a big group of non-aligned co- countries. I rather think of Kenya as multi-aligned. They're pretty much friends with everybody. I mean, this year they've had the Indians, the Russians, the uh, Americans, the Europeans. The King of England has recently yeah. visited... Um, and uh, and they basically, you know, put out the red carpet for everyone. Um, and, and I think this is you know, very, very uh, indicative of their, listen, um, uh, it's almost a version of, I suppose, the old uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping comment, I don't care whether the cat is black or white, so long as... Um, it catches you know, mice. <laughs> it catches mice. Yeah. And they basically will have black cats, white cats, and any other cat color in between come visit and say, well, how can we do business? And yeah, so that that it's smart on the diplomatic front. It's smart on the commercial front, and they are again they not part of BRICS yet seem to be getting a better deal out of China than we're getting. Or is that a, a misrepresentation on my part? 
No, and I, I, I don't think the Chinese would ever be so um, uh, undiplomatic as to say something like this. But I think that they tend to regard Kenya as a much more um, uh, interesting place to base their activities uh, in Africa. And they, uh, an analyst I know has called this the horseshoe strategy, where basically uh, China is intent on developing the infrastructure of the whole region, connecting it, um, and then looking at it not as a, a source of product, but probably even more yes there is some product coming out but a destination of which uh, china is producing so it's interesting you will see in nairobi now the traditional indian run shops or dukas as they're called are now complaining about the arrival of the chinese so <laughs> um uh, yeah it's 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 uh, you know uh, history repeating itself just in a, in a in a different form i think they're very pragmatic um, and uh, I always talk about their uh, what I call can-do philosophy because you probably remember uh, in in the Lion King, um, uh, the the Hakuna Matata was a, a, a sort of called a problem-free philosophy. In Kenya, it means a problem-solving philosophy. Ah. Uh, so when they when they have a problem, their response is Hakuna Matata. Let's pull together and find a solution. It's a beautiful and, sound. <laughs> uh, it, it's wonderfully practical. Thank you to Michael Power, consultant at the Kaskazi Consultancy for, uh, for us this evening. Fascinating piece on Daily Maverick and also development since he wrote that piece, of course, of the privatization of state enterprises. It's not a crime. It really isn't a crime. Sometimes it's good economics. The Money Show. The Markets. To David Peacock we go. David is a portfolio manager at Sunlum Private Wealth. He's on the line to us this evening uh, from Johannesburg. And it's not been a bad week for the market, David, but I want to zone in a little on the currency, which is finding very few sort of support mechanisms anywhere in the world. And it's not being manipulated as far as we can tell, yet losing value very, very sharply at the moment. Any insights, any thoughts? Bruce, uh, I need to uh, check on the chat rooms to see what the, the real story is. Bruce, you, you know, um, we've had comments uh, from the United States again this week just in terms of, uh, you know, inflation and interest rates and, and where that's possibly going. And then within our own economy and, and our own uh, comments, basically that, uh, you know, rates are uh, after, what is it, the third uh, the third session in terms of, of uh, looking at rates, um, that rates are probably not, they, they didn't go higher. And, and, you know, if there are a couple of temporary situations in our inflation data that uh, are going to, to ease off in, in the next couple of months, probably, you know, we're close to the peak in, in our interest rate cycle. So from that perspective, there, there doesn't really seem to be anything that's appealing in, in terms of, of the RAND. And it's quite interesting because in, in the last while, we've been seeing uh, some interest coming back into South African stocks from, from overseas buyers. So, for example, in terms of some of the, uh, the property stocks, uh, we've been seeing some interest coming in from, from offshore in, in the last while. So it is a, it is a bit of an anomaly. And, um, you know, un- unfortunately, we do tend to have a, a very volatile currency and, and you know, uh, I think as, as soon as we start having commodity prices moving better again, uh, I think I think you'll see that'll be filtering through uh, to the rand as well. And again, somebody was speculating today that we're unlikely to start seeing cuts much before September next year, but we could see other developed markets come through with cuts as early as the first quarter. And I suspect as soon as that starts happening, we may very well see 
um, the the currency traders favoring higher yielding emerging markets, of which we are one and of which we are a beneficiary of some fairly vast currency flows when these when these markets work properly. Yeah, Bruce, I, I'm not as optimistic in terms of how soon international markets okay. uh, will start cutting rates. I, I would think probably closer to the middle of next year, possibly the third quarter. Um, and, and obviously, if you look at that PMI data coming out of the U.S. and, and those employment numbers today, you know, that, that's indicating that, you know, corporates are starting to, to feel the pinch in terms of, of higher rates and, and, you know, unemployment levels starting to, uh, to elevate, not significantly, but, you know, you are starting to see that trend and, and the, the sort of anticipation that will feed through to, to corporate profits. So I, I would say to you that if, if that was the case and, and we started to see uh, views of, the, the uh, inflation down and, and interest rates coming coming low to support economies. Yes, definitely, our our currency will benefit from that. And and again, you know, we've spoken about this a uh, number of times and, and a couple of months ago, just in terms of the, the sort of opportunities in South African uh, bonds, particularly the rand denominated bonds, where you know those rates are still looking sort of around ten, ten and a half percent on a number of those. It, it is interesting, though, Bruce, that, uh, you know, near the end of October, you know, the all share was sitting just under sort of 70,000. Yeah. And, you know, as you commented today, I mean, we closed, what, around almost just under 76,000. Sure. So, so we've definitely seen a, a bit of an uptick in, in terms of, of the South African market and, and uh, you know, possibly a little bit of a risk on uh, appetite coming through and, and hopefully that feeds through to the end of the year. Uh, and long may it last. Thank you, David Peacock, very much indeed. David Peacock, uh, he's a portfolio manager at Sunlum Private Wealth. Yes, the market did go up today. Again, it's been a very good week from an index perspective, but unfortunately, the value of your money is lower in dollar terms, courtesy of a currency that is falling. And it's got nothing to do with RAND manipulation. Please, if anybody comes to you this weekend at any sort of social event and talks about the evil banks and the RAND manipulation, please direct them to the podcast, direct them to the conversation we had with Hillary. There is the level of misinformation and the level of politicization of information around this topic. It's weaponized to a point of self-destruction. Please do not fall into the trap of the nonsense. 702. Bruce is on the Money Show. Welcome to the Friday evening edition of the Money Show. On the Money Show at this time every Friday evening, what we do is we get somebody who does something really special. And it's luxury. It's the, the good stuff in the world. Uh, and tonight we're going to talk to the truffle lady. Have you ever had truffles? Truffles are a fungus. They grow a bit like mushrooms do, but they grow underground. And in places where truffles are grown, usually there is a pig trained uh, not to eat the truffle. uh, Or there's a dog less likely to eat the truffle, I suppose. Um, And we generally will equate truffles with Italy. goes very well with Italian food. And I was sent a little sample of a product. I must disclose this here. We're 1.3% of a very tomatoey delicious sauce. It's got truffle in it, the most expensive truffle in the world. And I can attest to the fact that it is a marvellous thing. You can go too truffly. You can get overpowered by the earthiness of truffle. You can be overwhelmed by it. But this particular one was, was very good. We're going to talk to the lady who imports it all to South Africa, the Italian product from Australia. At least one good thing has come out of Australia. 
I mean, it's, it's the first thing, but it is a good thing. In a moment. Uh, on your next Money Show, Lee Crimble. Now, Lee's got a fascinating job. She's a behavioral linguist on our How I Make Money feature. We're going to talk to her all about how she convinces people to do certain things simply using language. Matsi Modisa is going to be reviewing a business book for us in the Chief at Stuff Studios, Toby Shapshak, on tech and gadgets and fun, expensive things. The Money Show. The Friday File. The Friday File. EPSA CIB, the market leader in renewable energy deals across Africa, is proud to bring you The Money Show. EPSA is a registered FSP. Uh, Gail Galvin is the truffle lady. And I don't know if you've ever gone foraging for mushrooms. It's great fun. But if you do go, please take an expert because it is easy to make mistakes. And those mistakes can be life-changing. We don't have many truffles, but I do think occasionally they find them in the forests of Newlands in places like that, Gail, do they? Hi, Bruce. Hi, thank you for having me on the show, first of all. Um, well, they're not quite in Newlands, but uh, there are a lot of truffle growers that are started in South Africa, mm-hmm. and uh, they all believe it's a lottery ticket, but it takes a very long time to actually make money from this and to be able to make product because, you know, each year your harvest is just grows a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit. So it's got to have um, sort of the right soil and all those kind of things. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship with the trees, the soil, etc. So, yeah. Okay, I mean, a truffle is, um, a mushroom is a fungus. A truffle is a fungus, but they're not the same thing. A truffle looks a little bit like, I don't know, an if you went through a, a herd of antelope in the in the Kruger Park, you would see things that look fairly similar trailing behind the antelope. It's a sort of a, a gnarly, grey, blacky lump, really. I'm not describing it very well. Its taste makes up more for it than, therefore its looks more than anything else, I suspect. Yes, it's very, very special. But, but I must get across tonight that there are so many different types of truffles. So, you know, I do the Perigord um, truffle, which is the tuber melensporum, which is the um, actual word for it. Um, and there are so many people out there. So I do the most expensive. I do the best product. It's like the Rolls-Royce, Louis Vuitton, Gucci, <laughs> whatever your thing is. Yeah. Okay. Um, I only do the best. So, and then you come to somebody and they'll say, but I, Gail, you've got a, a, the truffle lady has got a black truffle. And yeah, I'm seeing a black truffle and it's cheaper than yours. Why is that? You see, there's about 900,000 species, even, even more species of truffle. And you get a very cheap truffle, which is summer berry truffle. So, uh, which tastes nothing like the perigord black truffle, which oh. I have. Uh, and so, um, and this, this, very, tastes- sorry, this perigord black truffle, this most expensive truffle in the world. And I guess, again, it comes from scarcity. It comes from how difficult it is to grow. It comes from how long it takes to propagate the spores and how long it takes them to proliferate, I suppose. Which And then, of course, the taste profile and the desirability of the, the perigord versus the others. Correct, correct. So um, so you also get the white elbow, which is, uh, I mean, that is the top of the range. I mean, you just can't, we don't even make product with that really. Um, and you can't forage, you got you, you can forage for it, but it is the, the most expensive because it is so difficult to find. It's high up in the mountains. Whereas the other truffles you can actually grow and, and from spores and this kind of thing. So, um, but my products are really, really special because the recipe, 
to this is amazing. And um, they are definitely, Stone Barn is known as the Rolls Royce. I mean, okay, I know no, everyone no, no, Gail, says Italy. Gail, okay, okay. Let, yes. let's, because why have you gone to Australia to find truffles? Australia has gold you know, and iron ore and other things. Have they, <laughs> have they actually created a truffle industry in Australia, possibly Italian immigrants who've, yes. uh, who, who've, who've created this business? It's actually, uh, Australia has become one of the biggest truffle um, areas in the world today. Really? Um, the truffle farms and the particular farm I deal with has been going for many, many, many years. It's a very, very big farm. It's absolutely, exceptionally stunning, beautiful in every way. Um, and everything that they do is just perfect. I mean, Australia, as you know, there was the, the restrictions, the, um, the, uh, the health uh, issues, everything has got to be 100% right. I mean, everything that comes from Australia, I must say, is is absolutely perfect. So um, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. I've met these people and um, we have a, kind of like family. It's almost, it's like an exceptional relationship. Um, I am the sole distributor for all the islands, um, the whole of Africa. And um, and I'm trying to truffleize everybody. <laughs> I want to truffleize you tonight. So I've, I've been, I've, I've been, girl, I've been truffleized. Um, uh, you know, again, <laughs> the idea of a fresh truffle, and this thing comes, and it's a, and you've got to use truffle incredibly sparingly with food. And I noticed that on the, this this lovely, I'm guessing it's a pasta sauce with really lovely rich tomato sauce with just 1.3 percent. Of the of your perigord, uh, perigord truffle in it, and it's this wonderful earthiness of the truffle that comes through in a in a really balanced way. Because sometimes, my goodness gracious me, you put you have people putting lashes of, of truffle oil, and I suppose you can put any old truffle into the oil, and it's a you having a truffle pasta. Well, that's lovely, but actually, it tastes like soil, and and it, it doesn't actually. There's no joy in it, and and it is about being parsimonious with it, isn't it? Absolutely. That's what I'm trying to explain to people, why I'm trying to educate them that there is such a big difference between a black truffle. And yes, mine's also a black truffle, but you have to know, and people get conned, unfortunately. Yeah. And then it looks like, you know, you, you, you got this very expensive product, but I have got the best of the best. I think you've made, um, I think you've and, made that I mean, point, Gail. I think you've made, you're very passionate. I have, I clearly, have I clearly, okay, got that across. Great. So, but anyway, but a black truffle, um, like a sort of the summer berry truffle and the other varieties, as I said, there are so many different varieties and then it does not taste. I mean, I've got people that know I do it. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm tasting it here. I'm in Italy here. I'm here. Oh, it was so disappointing. Exactly mm. what you're saying. So we've developed these products. I import um, whole truffles um, from all over the world, not just from oh, Australia, okay. depending on the season. Yes, so I import from Europe as well, um, but that's the the fresh truffle, and then my products, which are insanely delicious. I mean, you've got that are truffle really? sauce. Okay, I, I wasn't aware that they were good. And now, Gail, talk to me please about the lifespan of a truffle, because if one goes and picks a mushroom, they 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 get they yes. wilt and 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 age very very quickly. Uh, what is the lifespan of a truffle? The moment it is dug out of the ground. And you, you hold this okay, little so piece of, of, of uh, culinary gold in your hand. What is there? Is there a race against time there too? Yes, there is. So when you have to know how to look after the truffle, which is very important. So when you actually, um, so with from harvest, I will have it at your door and within 48 hours from harvest. Okay. And um, usually I like, I'm very sort of, I would like to be involved with my customers. I like to personally have that relationship, deliver personally, and they love that. It looks like I'm doing a 
sorry, cocaine deal because it's like <gasps> scale and I've got and I'm like doing the whole thing. It's like so funny. I meet these people in different places and like, um, and the scale comes out and the truffle goes on so that they can see because I'm sort of full of integrity and um, then we see that they're paying for the right amount of truffle. So um, the lifespan is usually um, seven days. You, you, you don't buy it to keep it. You buy it to use it. Life is short. You have to eat it. It's beautiful. It's a it, it's We've like amazing We've taste. We've got you. Gail, thank you. She's very enthusiastic as our Gail on a Friday night. Gail is the truffle lady. Uh, truffle is a, a fungus, believe it or not. But a fungus that apparently is quite delicious. Anyway, Gail did share um, some of her uh, wonderful product with us. It is very good. She is the truffle lady. Um, and it is that time of the year where people splurge a bit, where people spend a bit more money. Um, and you can get conned and you can overpay and you can be overpowered by what is a very strong flavour. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Gail, thank you very much for joining us. Gail, Gail Galvin. I've just been sent a, rem- a very funny little meme. It's an oldie but a goodie, my friend said to me. Um, and it, there's a, a WhatsApp dated February 2011, and it's from a woman to a man called John. Other guys are starting their own businesses, and you're just messing around with some weird Bitcoin thing. You seriously think you're smarter than them? We need to break up. There's no future staying with someone like you. Then there's no communication until six years later, November 2017, and that's when Bitcoin was going absolutely bananas. Hi, John. How are you? Long time no speak. <laughs> it's just one of those things that tickles my fancy. And people are fickle at the very best of times. Uh, let's play the Brutal Biz Quiz on this Friday night. And that is your chance uh, to outwit, outsmart, outplay and outmaneuver the Money Show team. Um, we win sometimes and sometimes you win. Will it be your day or will it be our day? How will this play out uh, on the Brutal Biz Quiz this Friday night? Who was the governor of the South African Reserve Bank? when the inflation-targeting framework was introduced in 2000. I don't think you need to understand the the inflation-targeting framework other than to know that National Treasury said to the Reserve Bank and the governor at that time, uh, you need to keep inflation between 3 and 6%. Sometimes it'll go go lower, sometimes it'll go higher, but your job is to keep it as close as you can to that target of 3 to 6%. Because up until that point, we'd had inflation... Spikes not as bad as Turkey is going through at the moment with the negligence of its economic management. But the the, the spikes in inflation have gone into the 20, 20%, the 25%, I think, inflation spiked up to toward the end of the 1990s. So National Treasury said, hold on a second, we need to change, and inflation targeting came in. It's not popular. But that's why it's good, uh, because it, it forces discipline. Um, and who was the governor of the Reserve Bank when inflation targeting was brought in? In the year... 2000. Cost your mind back. He was a voluble fellow. Not much of a cook, but voluble and a good governor. Not such a good cook. Bad shoes. Who was the governor in 2000? 011-883-0702-021-446-0567. Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. Who was governor of the Reserve Bank when inflation targeting was introduced? Mouse, mouse, where are you? Oh, so annoying when the mouse decides to have a mind of its own. Uh, no, there we go. Put it on the mouse pad. Works better that way. There we go. Andrew, in Centurion, who was governor of the Reserve Bank in 2000? 
Uh, Tito Mboweni. Tito Mboweni, absolutely right. The new governor, well, I say the new governor, he's in his second term and almost finished that. Lesitja Khanyaho wants to reduce inflation targeting to between 2 and 4% because that will reduce inflation, protect the value of people's money. And uh, I, I hope he gets the opportunity to do that. Uh, Sam Altman, uh, this time last week, was fired from which job which he was reinstated in by Wednesday this week? I've got no clue. No clue. Andrew, Instant Children. Thank you for playing very much indeed. Mbali, also in Centurion. Centurion is putting on a showing this evening. Who, uh, Sam Altman, uh, fired on Friday, rehired by Wednesday, by which company? I have no clue. You need to go and search on ChatGPT, the paid-for version, I think, on that one, Mbali. Uh, Mantla, in Rosebank, what is the name of the company? Open AI. Open AI. Absolutely. What a shambles that has been. Um, according to, now this I think is impossible, actually. I mentioned it once this week and I've written about it, uh, not yet published it. Uh, it is a word that is being used more and more by American companies. Walmart's Doug McMillan has used it. Uh, McDonald's Chris Kempinski has used it. In fact, it's been used 15 times by S&P 500 companies to try and disguise the impact of the cost of living crisis on ordinary people. I'm not going to gong you out on this because I think this, is a, this isn't a brutal biz question. This is an impossible brutal biz question. Um, but we'll, you may have heard it, Mandela, and you'll be very impressive if you get it right. What is this new very popular word? It's dreadful. Uh, no, the word is choiceful. What the? It does choiceful mean? If you go to modern dictionaries, if you go to Merriam-Webster, and if you go to dictionary.com, the word does not exist. You got to go to Oxford English Dictionary, and they say, well, it kind of comes from the 1500s, but nobody uses it except American chief executives to disguise nonsense in their results. So, Amanda, I'm not going to gong you out on that because I think that would be unfair. It is brutal, not ruthless. Biz quiz. Bad producers. You see, they're trying to screw you over. I, I think it's a conspiracy myself. Now, Amanda, um, there are OpenServe and Business Connection, or BCX, are owned by which company that is part government, part private? Mm, telcom. Telcom, absolutely right. Serami uh, Takubong, Chief Executive of Telcom, this week telling us that he's planned for the rails of the new economy and uh, the markets liked the, the, the story that he shared. Uh, Yuppie Chef, and Studio 88 uh, are owned by which Durban-based retailer best known for home and clothing? Um, that would be uh, Mr. Price. Mr. Price, Mudla. I was about to say a bit too long on the answers there, a bit too languid, Mudla. But anyway, we're going to make you the of the biz quiz because we're nice that way uh yes mr price this week came out with a trading update uh it's uh, got uh 70 of studio 88 it bought out of course the whole of yappy chef uh, as part of the sort of i think the extending the brand into higher demographics uh mr price has always sort of dominated the mass market and its trading update this week was remarkable double digit sales growth in really a very very tough 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 market and the market rewarded mr price 
with a very handsome uh, increase in the share price. Uh, the world's a weird and wonderful place. I mean, in so many places, the news flow is improving and we're seeing uh, greater levels of opportunity and growth and we're seeing greater optimism. Uh, KPMG, now this is interesting, uh, one of the big four audit firms, they were the ones fingered in the state capture process. It's got nothing to do with the global firm. There was shenanigans at local level. Remember the, the poster, and I posted a picture of it, and I just couldn't believe they kept the, the the poster up at the Cape Town arrivals, domestic arrivals. And it was KPMG leading the way to the next revolution. And they were up to their eyeballs in state capture scandals, leading the way to the next revolution. It's not what the poster meant. It's just what it looked like. But KPMG in the UK has frozen pay for 12,000 employees. Uh, inflation rates have come down, but the cost of living in the UK, like here, has rocketed considerably. And really, they're blaming a, a tough economic environment. The It's an accounting firm, of course, KPMG, and it's been telling its staff they're not going to receive a pay rise this year unless they get a promotion. Now, the trouble with not receiving a pay rise in an inflationary environment is that your money is worth less, so therefore it's effectively a pay cut. They're going to lose bonuses as well. And, um, yeah, the it's interesting. Their tax and legal arm got 55% of the full amount they could have been paid. These firms could have worked out if we maximize the potential, you'll be paid this much. If we get to this point, you'll be paid that much. They got paid only 55% of what they could have been paid had things gone well, which tells you that things are really not going well in big four accounting world, certainly not in the United Kingdom. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's looking at even though, you know, times look like they're getting better and inflation is coming down and the, um, the, the British budget this week, the autumn statement um, was by and large quite positive. Um, the markets are not being that forgiving. Coming up in the next hour, the best bits of the money show. And that's where we have hand-selected for your uh, consumption, four interviews from the week that we think that you might have, if you missed them, certainly you'll like hearing them for the first time. And if you heard them, maybe a second listen isn't a miss. That comes up after Eyewitness News.